Hello, I'm Sarah Connolly, and today I'm talking to one of my all-time favourite cyclists. She has got probably one of the best Twitters, and she has some of the best blogs in the world. She's Bridie O'Donnell, and she's talking from sunny Melbourne. That's a total lie. It's very grey and cloudy here, but we should keep the the dream alive that Australian yes. weather is perfect at all times. Well, actually, I should have said Dr Bridie O'Donnell, because you are, it's not a joke, you are a proper doctor, aren't you? I am a medical doctor. My boyfriend jokes about that and says, why would anyone say, are you a medical doctor? And I said, because I could be a doctor of silversmithing or some other type of PhD genius. But well, yes, not. exactly. I mean, you could be like one of those Emma Pooley types, but no, you're a proper doctor. Oh, what a show off. She's a proper doctor. <laughs> and a proper runner by the looks of her. Yeah, she just won the Duathlon World Championship. <clears throat> yeah, Zoffingen. Amazing. Yeah, and then she came second in the Jungfrau Marathon just because. I hope she's tired. <laughs> no, I think she's going to do the Taiwan Challenge next. It's just, yeah. <laughs> does, does that inspire you, Bridie? <laughs> yeah, I already did Ironman. She's way behind the time. I did 2006 Hawaii Ironman and it was so not fun. I never did another one. <laughs> well, you are currently racing the National Road Series in Australia. Um, can you tell people a bit about that in, in, a, in a nutshell? Yeah, it's actually changed a lot. Um, last year was my first year back in Australia after racing in Europe and the, and the US, and I did a couple of the NRS races here, but this year has been my full season. And um, I must say, it is very impressive. Compared to the men's racing, we don't have as many races and we certainly don't have the depth of riders. There's something like 160 to 190 boys starting every NRS race here mm -hmm. in Australia and that's um, 13 races throughout the year. But the women's round has um, eight races and it's quite... Uh, you know, a large part of Australia is being taken in. We go to Tasmania and Adelaide and Queensland and then most of the racing is in New South Wales and Victoria where probably the biggest population of riders and people are. So it's been fantastic. Um, there's still We're still suffering from a lack of depth, which means that generally on uh, you know, a four-day race where there's a lot of climbing, the same people are winning. Yeah. Um, those, those same people are still world-class, though. I mean, Ruth Corset, who's leading the National Road Series, was the National Road Champion in 2010, and she represented Australia at World Champs Teams in 2009 and 2010. Mm. So um, she's a very well-known climber and a good sprinter and very aggressive rider and um, has a good team of um, Holden Women's Cycling behind her. And, in fact, her teammate won on the weekend in Canberra, Dan scorny little 19 year old who pretty much won every stage and pissed everybody off she's a, a total phenom this chick um ellen scarrett and i don't think australia really has seen a young climbing talent like this for a very very long time and maybe never you know we've had a lot of all-rounder riders in australia like anna wilson um around the time of the sydney olympics and anoni ward around the time of athens olympics mm. um who performed well internationally but we haven't had a young climber who's then gone on to a good career. So I hope that with the right kind of pathways, some of these girls who are racing well here will go on to getting good contracts overseas. Yeah, I mean, I really liked, I mean, the Australian system, I know it's got its good parts and its bad parts, but, you know, watching Kat Garford in the, you know, top 10 in the world, was she sick for something? Like, like that's how it should work, really, isn't it? Like, you know, you, you, you um, rock the, I don't you know rock... if I'm the right person to ask about Kat Graff, which she was not an Australian citizen until February this year. And, ah, um, okay. you know, Felicity Wardlaw was overlooked for world championships and I think she would have been a very worthy competitor on a course like we saw in Ponferrada, essentially pancake flat, not very technical and definitely suited to 
a rider who can put down a lot of horsepower. So um, that's possibly my bias, um, not a bias against um, Garfoot, but I think that Woodville should have gone and I'm a bit confused as to why Australia didn't select at least two riders, let alone three when we had three spots. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, Britain, you know, guess how many people, British riders there were in the ITT world? I think, isn't it just Bradley Wiggins' left leg? I know, no, 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 they've, they've, got, they've got riders in every event except for the women's TT. And right. the women's road team has got two mountain bikers in it. They are lovely, lovely women, really good mountain bikers. But still, they're mountain bikers. The joke is that because the course has got lots of hills, the mountain bikers should be good at it. That's very true. I wonder are they allowed to ride their knobbly tyres? Do you think that will assist in the process? <laughs> yeah, do you reckon they're allowed to ride a mountain bike? In it's interesting. I just was reading today about Leah Kirkman being successful in her appeal to represent Canada. This is she was overlooked for selection, um, you know, six eight weeks ago, what? and it's only just. Sorry, what? Leah Kirkman was overlooked. She's, she was overlooked and not selected and she appealed, and her appeal was successful yesterday. And she's flown yesterday from Canada to Ponferrada to represent Canada. That's amazing. That's, yeah, that's... so they've only selected three women and they felt that they didn't have anyone else that was worthy. Um, she's podiumed on the Canadian National Time um, oh, yeah. Championships four times, I think. Um, so, yeah, so she'll be racing with the other three women um, who's, who I think are, what, Joelle Newmanville and maybe um, the Caroline other two. Tenwell. Sorry, repeat that for me. Carol, 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 oh, Carol Canal, and then um, the other rider who's the dual TT and road yeah. champion. It's, yeah, it's just crappy. This this politics is mad crappy, and and like you know, especially when you've got riders who are out there in the team time trial who then aren't taken. I mean, this happens all the time. The Norwegians are having this massive wreck. Carl, Carl Lima is going crazy in mm. with the, with with Norwegian press. British cycling, I don't even know. I mean, Sharon Laws at this point could win everything, and they still wouldn't take her to Worlds because they just don't like her. Oh look, you're forty. Bye bye. You know, yeah. but but they don't like her. She would. <laughs> I mean, I find it. I do find it really interesting, and I used to ask myself that when I was a rower. Um, there would often be quite contentious selections in rowing, and I think that it's um, it, even though rowing can be selected based on ergo scores or uh, prognostic speeds, there was still this kind of dark art where um, <laughs> they would do seat racing and they would put certain women in the boat or men, and then they'd say, "I just think those two work better together in four seat and five seat," and so it was pretty difficult to argue with. And the Australian cycle. Um, selection policy document is an epic tome and <laughs> somewhere around you know pages 49 to 50 it says essentially we're probably going to pick who we feel is appropriate and I guess the challenge for so many writers is that you know if you do get selected in your opinion and your family's opinion and your friend's opinion the selection process is solid and sound and right and when you're overlooked, you think the selection process stinks. Yes. So what I found interesting to read was Chloe Hosking's blog about this because she got selected for Commonwealth Games Road Race, mm -hmm. which I found interesting to say the least, um, and yet did not get selected for World Champs and wrote a blog about how disappointed she was about that. And I thought, well, that says uh, um, to me a little bit about the mismatching perhaps expectations or insight or what kinds of conversations she may or may not have had with the selector and the head coach, Marv Barat. So I think the challenge for so many 
women is that because they don't get the same opportunities as men to race on a world stage or to make money or to build a career or to progress from a shit team to a decent team, that every non-selection at a key event like the Commonwealth Games or Olympics or World Championships is more monumental. When Renshaw gets overlooked on a flat course when he could win a sprint, everyone throws their arms up and says, outrageous, it's because Renshaw's out of the system. But then he moves on to another race, makes more money, you know, better contract, whatever. That's the thing. Um, I think even when I was reading your blog about the Star de Mexico foreign women and how they, they get poorly treated or when I've had comments about the things I've written about women being poorly treated, people say, yeah, that happens in boys' conti teams as well and even in pro conti teams. And, look, I'm sure it does. But those boys have somewhere to hope to progress to. Yeah. No one's being treated like that at BMC or Garmin. Yeah. And... Um, when you have women who are already on the highest level of team, a UCI team, and they're being exploited or not paid or, in my case, having to anxiously bargain and barter with the director about, will he be giving me my, my money this month? Because if I know I don't get it this month, I won't get it the double the month after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, if I, and if he doesn't like me and doesn't pick me for the next race, then I won't show up, then I've got no money to actually buy food. These sorts of challenges thinking, well, how do I then get a performance that does propel me to a better team or that does show me in a good light to my national selector? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when you look at who was riding for Farron this year, I mean, she's not said anything about it publicly, but you you can see, oh, hang on, have they actually had Lucy Martin in a team since June? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. this is the thing that I don't, you know, you're, you're in a situation where you're simultaneously not being paid and you're not getting to ride and you can't, and you basically have to hope that someone likes you or your friends can put you in touch with someone or whatever that that, that your network can basically have someone to rescue rescue you you know what i mean or mm, you just give up mm. cycling and that's- yeah and look we've, we've seen that for a long time actually historically both in australia and many european countries that uh you know a wealthy and altruistic businessman might say hey pierre you want to ride in a conti team i'll cover your salary mm. you go to belgium and i'll give you ten thousand euro and you'll be sorted <laughs> and you show me your talent and your strength and, you know, and then you can progress. And that's happened a little bit for a few male riders here in Australia too. And I don't have confirmation, haven't seen the money change hands, but that, you know, generally in rumour there's been a few boys that have gone off to Belgium or France and ridden in moderately shitty teams, but their father or their friend, I mean, Cameron Worth is a great example, his contract with Cannondale was organised by his father with some begging and pleading of Aldo Sassi, the late and great Aldo Sassi, and so he rode in that team and was basically, well, what harm can it do? We don't, it's not going to cost us anything. Yeah, his dad's yeah, yeah. going to cover everything, and, and if he proves out to be good, then it'll be good. Mm-hmm. But I think that um, because of all the um, perennial problems associated with women's sport, which is less airtime, less mainstream media coverage and less deemed to be value, that an average sponsor will think, well, why would I give, uh, let's say, for example, why would I give Joe Hogan money to go and race at Bigler so that she can help support herself and get her best performances when maybe I could look after the boy who might be the next Richie Port or the next Simon Clark. And so it's deemed to be maybe a financial and or a a business move. And Joe, Joe Hogan is a great example of a very talented bike rider who performs very well when she's at home in Australia between September to um, 
February and has had great results at, at World Championships, but uh, sorry, at Australian Championships. But it's often difficult when she goes overseas. She rode for Biscaya um, last year. She's riding for Bigler this year, and I don't think she's had the season that she would have hoped for and didn't race in the team's time trial team that Taryn Heather did get selected for, mm. another Australian. And so, yeah, it's hard for her. And she, like Rachel Malin, are in that late 20s, early 30s period where people are going to start to think, well, you haven't shown us anything outstanding. Why would we give you another opportunity? Oh, it's just awful, isn't it? I mean, it's, 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 it's so difficult. And, 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 I, and I can also, because some people were saying when this Farron thing came out, I mean, I've got to tell you, this is the fourth year in a row I've heard rumours that, or it has been alleged that Farron haven't paid their riders. And some people go, well, why do people keep going to those teams? But I kind of mm-hmm. can see that if you're between that rock and a hard place of, well, at least they're promising to pay me. Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's plenty of teams that say, um, teams in the US, oh, there's no salary. Um, And so you know going there that that's what's going to happen. Look, I think that it's a very, um, as you know, and as every cycling fan knows, that road cycling is truly tantalising and heartbreaking. Mm. And every for every crappy season or crappy week or um, injury we have people rally around you and you try to rally yourself um, and think well it will be better next week or next month or next season and if you're younger you can afford to sort of be a little bit more dismissive and think okay I didn't have a great season with that team and look Tiff Cromwell's a great example I think of this she's had some She's become such a world-class performer, in my opinion, especially in one-day racing, World Cup mm. racing. Um, but she's had some really crappy situations. You know, she rode in a team with Rochelle Gilmore and that relationship didn't work. That dynamic wasn't suited to her. She was in the team that Nicole Cook had set up that was sponsored by some major oh, yachting God, company that bailed. Oh, shipping, yes. Sky, oh, yeah, and that move. bailed at the last minute. Yeah. Um, she rode with high, high Tech and I don't think that was the right mix for her and then she was obviously with Green Edge. So... You could argue, for whatever reasons, her own, um, you know, attitudes, personality, age, all the things that are, make everybody human, they weren't necessarily the right mix for her, and yet she has persisted. And so, which is a wonderful thing, um, but it also reminds the people who aren't performing as well and getting better contracts that maybe I just need to hang in there for one more year and that will happen to me. I mean, it's sort of like being in Hollywood and going to auditions every damn day and all around you are the same girls that look the same and they're hotter than you and skinnier than you and they're willing to do more than you are. And so you think, but I've got to hang in there because look what happened to Naomi Watts. She got that great movie and she was in Mulholland Drive and now she's an Academy Award winner. That's going to be me. <laughs> <laughs> but I always I always loved your blog. That blog where you were talking about sharing a room with a nine-year-old girl as your as your accommodation. Um, <laughs> I mean, I just like, you were sitting going, okay, so you gave up being a nice, well-paid doctor in lovely Melbourne to do this. What the fuck? That's just, it was amazing. Yeah, but it's not like someone lays out the options on two pieces of paper and you go, ooh, hang on let me choose um you don't imagine it's going to be like that and trust me sharing the room this room that was all pink and there were pictures of horses on the walls and it was very cute it was like the room I never had um sharing a room with her was better than where I was so this was salvation compared to this revolting teen house that I stayed in in uh, Toscana. I think I was in the ugliest village in Tuscany uh, and it was just a couple of K off the highway and this was my first pro-teen situation and I got there and it was snowing 
in you know March and I didn't speak very good Italian and my teammates didn't speak any English and they basically mocked and derided me all the time, which I got used to because that's sort of the Italian way. And as long as you don't take it too personally, them calling you stupid most of the time, um, you, you can you can improve your Italian, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> But it, it just, as much as it all makes for quite good material later, as my father would say, chapters for the book, um, it really is heartbreaking and, and you don't, you get used to it um, and you, it's short. Sure, look, it's not like being Bobby Sands and being in prison, but it's, it's pretty awful. And so then to try to get some sort of outstanding physical and or mental performance out of yourself on the race that counts, that's a bit of a tall order. You know, when you're just trying to survive and fend off abuse and horror from situations that you're in on a daily basis, to then think, okay, right, reframe my mindset. We're going to uh, Chitiglio World Cup. I want to perform well. I'm climbing well in training. It's all going to be fine. It'll be great. And, you know, there are some robots that can, and I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but there are some people who really can compartmentalise their living and social situation and then perform well. And you could argue they might be more world-class athletes or that they're sociopaths. I don't know. We saw a lot of that. um, You know, we see that with a lot of incredibly selfish writers and I've lived with a few of those. They are awful people. You do not want them as a friend or or a partner, but they get results out of themselves. And there are few Australian girls like that. There's plenty of girls in Europe and the US like that, and it works for them. Um, but I wasn't, I needed to turn into a bit more of a sociopath if I was going to get classy performances out of myself. <laughs> I mean, I, your blogs, I think, I think the one I was most interested was the, um, the rumours about sex. Now, do you know about sex? Are you I, married? Um, I'm, I'm, I, I may be married to a woman, um, so I've, it's something I've heard about. Is that even allowed in your country? Yes, um, yeah, we're, we're progressive, oh, damn it. <laughs> in the same first team that I was in, um, one of the things that I guess I was naive blew my mind was that our married director was having an affair with our head sprinter who was the Italian national champion at the time and it wasn't just that they were having an affair which would have been you know tolerable if we all knew about it but firstly they were pretending that they weren't and secondly they had this sort of sick making bickering coochie coo kind of situation going on they would often argue or make sweet love over the radio while we were racing so um it was it was awful again sounds pretty funny now but you know when when one girl's getting the race wheels and the food after the race and the bins of water or getting motor paste back up to the front bunch when she's being dropped and she's in the second group um and the rest of you aren't getting food or water or race wheels or a spare bike when you crash it's pretty divisive and all it did was serve to make her become more alienated and she was 25 and he was 50 it was revolting um and you know it it was and so dysfunctional i mean it would be the same in any workplace if the the head of the law firm's having an affair with one of the partners and the rest of the partners are all trying to function in their normal life it, it would be very bizarre and I think um, some of the girls, Tatiana Goderzo, who was the world champion that we were all riding for for most of that season, she just, you know, and a few of the other girls are just kind of like, whatever. They never really talked about it, but they never denied it either. And uh, she would disappear off after dinner and his room would be locked and the, room, the old fat swanny that he would share with would be in the bar until it was safe for him 
to go back to his room and then we'd see Monia sort of slinking out of Giancarlo's room and then Giancarlo would be all cheery in the morning just think oh give us a break like we're trying to do a race here actually that was that all happened in Spain and the wonderful Beth Dure who's the um swanee for specialized Lululemon now she was the swanee for the Australian national team at the time and she she would love to me to recount the story about how I got locked in the team van in the car park at midnight going down to get the washing so we're staying in this crappy motel um, for the Durango tour before the World Cup in yeah. 2010. And um, I had been instructed to go down and get, well, sorry, I voluntarily went down to get the washing out of our washing machine in the team van because the Swanee was drinking and smoking cigars in the bar with a few of the other Swannies and he was blind drunk and good for nothing. And um, so I went down into the van and I didn't have a phone with a light on it, obviously, because this was 2010 <laughs> and there's no iPhone 5S. Um, and so I went down into this dark car park and then I got into the van to get the washing and the van door closed and then I was locked in the van in a car park and it was midnight. And so I banged on the door for a while and I thought, what have I, what has my life become? And then I realised, I know what I'll do. I'll ring Beth. She'll be awake. She'll be washing buttons or something. And obviously she's working for the national team. So I rang her and she was hysterical with laughter and came down and rescued me after about 45 minutes of me, like, wanting to kill myself <laughs> in the back of the Baldano van. Nobody cared. Nobody noticed that I was gone. You know, my teammates was probably, she was probably doing the equivalent of Italian Snapchat with some stupid under-23 boy from an Italian team down the road. And it was, it was miserable. God, it's just... I, and I raced so badly in that tour. It rained every day and I was crap. And I just thought, I want to get out of here. So why, <laughs> why did, I mean, how did you keep going for so long? And why are you still doing it? Well, I'm doing it now because I really like it and I'm so much better at it than I was. I mean, I, my expectations in those early years, I only started racing in 2008 in the national team mm -hmm. and um, I raced about a half to two-thirds of a season over there and raced some pretty hard racing. But I I was trying to qualify for Beijing Olympics and didn't get selected. So that was sort of my mission. And then in 2009, I quit my job again and, and raced. We did a bit of racing in the US and I loved that. So then when I got offered a pro contract in 2010, I thought, yeah, 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 this is going to be great. I'm going to be awesome and then I'm going to go to the Olympics in 2012. It's all going to work out fine. Um, and as you know, there's such an enormous gap, and this is something I'm seeing a lot of now in the NRS, between physical ability and race craft. Yeah. And one of the things that Australians lack because we haven't had the same exposure to enormous bunches and fast bunches is that we don't have the same race craft as a lot of those big Belgian Dutch biatches that, you know, <laughs> chicks like Sarah Dulce who just used to use her very big hand and push you out of the way coming through. <laughs> and so that, that stuff was scary for, for me. And if I can speak for some of the girls on my team, I'm sure it was scary for them as well. Um, even good performing riders like, you know, Amanda Spratt, who was in the national team with me, or Alexis Rhodes, they, they had more skills than I did and much better experience, but it was still pretty overwhelming. Yeah. And Australian women, as a general rule, haven't been just popping over to Europe in their 30s and then immediately adapting to those bunch sizes. Um, and so I guess I had that combination of desperation and ambition, but a complete lack of ability in that department. I was strong and I could ride near the front and then we would change direction. I would get dropped and I would think, why is this happening? Why am I so shit? You know, why, yeah. why can't I keep up? 
Everyone else can keep up. What's wrong with me? And I spent so much time in the convoy. I really got to know a lot of people like Ronnie. I think Ronnie knows who I am. Maybe I'll get a contract with Lululemon, you know, because he sees me in the convoy all the time. <laughs> then I realized later, that's not actually a very good recommendation of my ability. It's not like I'm going back to chat to people. I'm, I'm back there because I've been dropped. Um, <laughs> but I guess I kept going back because I, yeah, I had a really a burning desire to be an exceptional road cyclist. And I perhaps didn't have enough knowledge to know that that was completely impossible. I still had a lot of hope. <laughs> That's yeah, probably yeah, what yeah, the yeah. was. And then when I went to the US, it was in some ways a little bit easier um, in 212 because bunch sizes weren't the same and the, and the racing wasn't the same. But I still, I still had a lot to learn. And it's not until this year that um, – and, and sure, again, the bunches are smaller, but we've had, we raced the tour, the San Miranda tour and the tour of the Murray, a couple of races in Northern Victoria in the last month where there'd be, you know, 85 women in the race. And it's pretty, that's a pretty impressive road tour for four or five stages in Australia, I think. And what's really fascinating is now I'm a totally different rider than I was when I first went to Europe. Like I'm, I used to think about crashing all the time. I would envisage crashing. I would see myself crashing. I would see people change direction. I'd think, shit. Whereas now I move through the bunch and someone changes direction and I just find a gap to go to. And so I realise now that that's just normal. That's normal development of a rider. It's just a shame that I'm so damn old because if I'd started riding at 20, I would now be 25 and be very skillful and thinking, okay, well, not very skillful, but more skillful. And I'd be thinking, okay, I think I could go over to Europe and I could try my best. But to be now 40 and have started racing at 35 and be big and strong but have nowhere near the capability of being able to perform a role or or um, survive and then get a better contract meant that I was just constantly disappointed. Whereas now, and it's really interesting because I've got some great young teammates in my um, domestic team here who are fit, strong athletes and they're good climbers and they're on Strava and they say, oh, I did this many watts per kilo or whatever. And then we go to a race and I think, where are you? Mm. You're never anywhere. You're always at the back. You're always getting dropped. Oh, why are you always riding out in the wind? And I think, wow, I used to do that. <laughs> I used to do that and they were my strategies because I didn't know any better. Yeah. And you realise that's, that's one of the beautiful things about cycling too. It's an apprenticeship and you do get better at it. And the more you do with it and the more you're exposed to it, the more skills you get. And that's why that completely um, ridiculous age average law that the UCI had up until last year was completely discriminatory and it made no sense. Yeah. I mean, if that law existed in the men's peloton, there'd be no Hincapi, O'Grady, you know, oh, I mean, sure, they've all been busted for drugs and stuff. But other than that, and Jens Voigt, you know, we wouldn't all be able to wax lyrical about old bastards like Jens because people would say, oh, sorry, Jens, you can't get a contract, you're too old. Yeah. Now, there'd be... A, global outrage if if men in their late 30s and 40s couldn't ride because they're such good leaders they say huh this isn't as bad as the Tour de France in 1998 you know that was a bad year <laughs> um, so I think that um, unfortunately there are going to be a lot of women who won't get contracts who could offer their experience and their leadership just because I think still, um, you know, teens are reluctant. They think, oh, it also, it's easier to boss 19-year-olds around than, yeah, than yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. a 35-year-old lawyer or, a, um, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I do I do find it interesting because we're talking about, for example, Bulls Dolmans. They're talking about that we're going to sign another big-name rider. And you're counting mm. up. And, and the other, I mean, thank God the age has gone away because, you know, you'd see people and you go, okay, well, we've got Judith Arn, Annina Teutenberg. <laughs> 
And maybe Stevens mm. is coming up. To yeah, yeah. And we need some 16 year olds to really yeah, do exactly, because that will balance out our age average. Mm. And, and yeah, the, the whole thing about registration, well, they can't have a German, you know, they've got two riders each of German, Dutch, and something else, you know, USA. So they've got to basically get another Dutchie or, or someone from another country, because otherwise they then become. You know, in Australia, they they then become a German team, and they don't want to do that. Mm. They want to be a Dutch mm. team. Oh, I, yeah, I didn't know that whole detail as well in terms yeah. of the numbers. Yeah, yeah, it's basically yeah, your team is registered where the average, where the most number of riders in the team is from. Oh, I see. So this is why. Okay. So this is why you might have, and and you see it, you see it all the time, where teams that want to register, so so specialised Lululemon's being German, they've been American, they don't really care, but you see some teams where they basically sign on girls who you never see race, and you're like, mm. I wonder, is that mm. just, is that just so they can come from that country? And it's, yeah, it's really. It, those things are just nutty like you shouldn't be looking at it that those sorts of things you shouldn't I and mean, thank god the age rate age difference is gone because you should be looking at your team for oh right okay we've got this we need one of those those people work yeah. together well you know we need we need a balance and then to suddenly go oh, hang on a minute <laughs> that makes us German absolutely. yeah absolutely <laughs> so Amazing. um so you were on the podium this weekend I was yeah yeah you came second you were beaten by that scrawny climber Damn her. She then went on to win the tour. So I didn't feel so bad. And they even gave me like the consolation sprinter's jersey for stage two saying, well, you did get second in the time trial, so you get to wear the sprinter's jersey. And you think, yeah, beaten by a climber in a TT, so they give me the sprinter's jersey. And then I proceeded to lose, you know, seven minutes on the epic 11K climb into the finish on that stage. So, yeah, all good. I mean, I guess that's the other thing, to go from being, to go from being good domestically to being to struggling internationally to going back to be good good to, to good domestically does that give your ego do you does your ego feel better or does your ego look at the top step and curse <laughs> uh no no my ego is still just desperately ambitious and wanting to be loved and adored being on the top step all the time that's my <laughs> one of my major pathologies is perfectionism i wrote a great blog about that i say modestly but no i did i wrote a blog about that because uh, it made me think of my grandfather and i uh, was in the u.s and i realized that um, a lot of the reasons why I hadn't been performing well is because I had too much expectation. And when I started riding, I wanted to go to the Olympics mm. instead of thinking um, maybe I should start riding and just see if I can be good. Um, and in fact, my partner at the time was an Ironman triathlete and he was very good. And I said, Oh, do you want to win Hawaii? And he said, Nah, I don't think I can win Hawaii. And I remember thinking, What's wrong with you? Don't you, don't you want to achieve the greatest thing you can in the sport that you're doing? And he said, yeah, but you've got to be, you know, realistic. And, um, and I thought that, and that was clearly the difference um, between some, and some, that's why some people are actually more satisfied. And I used to think those people were weak and annoying, but now I realise they're just happier uh, <laughs> because they think, oh, that was better than last time. <laughs> yeah, you see, but, but, but I think we all have, I mean, I, I, I struggle with this too. As soon as you've made an achievement, that resets the bar and that's the baseline. Oh, of and, course, and, absolutely, and, yeah. and then and, and as soon as you've achieved, you want to look for, you want to look higher up and wide, and it's it's God, it's it's it, it, it just sends you crazy, and then you're yeah. neurotic. Yeah. It's wonderful. Mm. So, um, I just quickly because we don't have much time, I could talk to you for days. Um, <laughs> your blogging. I mean, one of the things that was very interesting is when you started in cycling. It was kind of at the same time social media was picking up, and it was you know now these days everyone's on Twitter and we can see race results coming through on Twitter. Mm. But your blogs 
and your Twitter stream have been invaluable to fans. And I mean, have you did you did your ego like that? Does your ego get some love from the response you get from that? Or well, more importantly, I felt like, and I'm not trying to be grandiose, but you're right. Before there was a lot of uh, cycling on Twitter, I felt like I was actually helping people get access to things. And I remember yeah. some of my earliest, um, my whole year when I first started on Twitter, which might have been '09, was a lot about this is where we're going. These are the riders on my team. This is who won the race. Uh, here's a photo of the team then here's a photo of the girl on the podium you know I may not even know her but here's the results and I thought you know this was giving people some proximity to a sport that they love but perhaps not a demographic that they knew very well yeah. and um, now everybody does that and, and and which is great and now you can access those results very easily and you can freaking stream some of the events which is really terrific um, and one of the it was funny I, you would come back to Australia and uh, in this in the summer and a couple of people and I took this the wrong way or I was very defensive about it but a couple of guys from my cycling club said geez you know you tweet a lot and I said oh well first I said well you don't have to follow me so f off but also <laughs> I said said have you ever lived in another country where people don't speak the language have you ever lived in a place where you're completely isolated and you have no conversations in English other than trying to Skype family or partner or friends um for me, Twitter was one of the most amazing ways to connect with people at home and people I didn't even know. Um, it's how I met, you know, Stuart. It's how I met lots of people who I've never who I've never met, um, who became a wonderful sort of solace and connection and reference point for normality as well. So to be living in a place where um, it was great material for the book but pretty damn isolating and yet to have Twitter as a way of connecting and to use skills that I like to think I was good at like writing or um, finding humour or um, noting cultural differences or pointing out the things that I was finding hilarious or devastating. For me that was a lifesaver truly mm. and I can't um, overstate that. It You know it just became – and, look, I think about the way it might have been if you were a bike rider back in the day where there was no Skype and there was no social media. And some of the guys I know who raced 15, 20 years ago, guys like Paddy Yonker, said he would leave the team house, walk down to a public phone, hope that his wife would be home, ring, uh, maybe she'd answer, maybe she wouldn't, you know, oh, well, walk back to the house. You know, and you think, fire out, where is your connection to the people you love and the humour – I mean, I think in some ways we've gone the other direction now and you can be in a team house. When I went over to the US and rode for Vandekitten, um, we would be lying on our revolting inflatable air mattresses in our horrible team houses where there'd be, uh, sorry, homestays and there'd be like gerbils in a cage in the corner or <laughs> a couple. When we stayed in this amazing house in Philadelphia when we raced Philadelphia Classic, the bloke who put his hand up to homestay, the whole team, Vandekitten and our DS, forgot to tell us that his wife had just left him and they were in the middle of a very angry divorce and she showed up on the second night we were there, drunk, and had a huge domestic, like a terrible argument, and then, then she stayed the next night but wouldn't speak to him. And meanwhile, there we are all just, you know, sorry, tiptoeing around and using his kitchen and his bathroom. You think, why did you do this? Why did you, why did you say you wanted to homestay six chicks and a DS? if your life is in meltdown. So, you know, for us, um, then you'd see all of our team on their computers or their phones 
24-7. So I think in some ways, too, a lot of younger bike riders now have so much access to internet and social media and that they've actually not really maybe embracing a lot of the culture in their new teams. They're so busy connecting at home, with home, that, uh, you know, are they even going walking around, you know, Girona and seeing the place or are they just getting an Instagram pic and then sending it back? So there's probably a nice balance there somewhere where you're not totally isolated but you also actually are imbibing some of the beautiful culture and the challenges of being isolated yeah yeah i mean yeah i mean it's it's, it's so interesting because you liz hatch and vicky whitelaw were my were my roots into what's cycling like and actually what's happening in these what an interesting trio <laughs> never having dinner with the three of us please <laughs> one of those dinner party lists that would just be great to watch no like a, no. like a reality you know Vicky Whitelaw <laughs> yeah I, I, I really I, I really like Vicky um that's, that's, one of those, that's one of those um let's watch you know like you have them on reality tv shows where you get disparate bunches together no but it was it was so interesting because you you really and I love your common tweeting will you be common tweeting worlds this weekend uh, if you oh, could see me know. if you could see me I've got my pleading eyebrows God, if you cut your eyebrows, I'll do anything for those eyebrows. <laughs> but I particularly loved the world. It was either Worlds or Olympics where you tweeted so much you got locked out of your account. Oh, I did. I broke Final Twitter. Final 10K and, or something. Yeah, yeah that, was, um, that was the Olympics. And New York Velocity saved me and I would send him DMs of my comment tweets and then he would post them up as his own. <laughs> so it was an extremely successful mission for comment tweeting of the Olympics. And, um, yeah, thousands of people... Um, were following online so it was pretty cool actually I really enjoyed it and one of the things that's one of the things I find frustrating is um, the lack of insightful commentary about women's cycling and look yeah. women's sport in general but I think we all see you know when the Olympics do come around we all find ourselves watching all kinds of sports that we don't know much about and the reason we love them is because commentators are totally kick-ass you know yeah, when you yeah, watch yeah. the gymnastics and it's a woman who knows a lot about it you think, yeah, this girl's good and that girl's not as good and this is why this routine was amazing. The fact that we had Phil Liggett commentating the Commonwealth Games in Delhi four years ago and used the word boring 34 times oh, was an abomination. Um, and, you know, you think, well, maybe it was boring because it was a flat course and a couple of teams had the intention of it coming down to a bunch kink. So yeah. talk about that. Talk about why they're riding the way that they are. Yeah. And also the idea that only one type of racing is exciting and that is attacks flying off the front at high speed. I mean, that doesn't make exciting racing. It just means you've clearly got a lot of teammates that you're able to dispose of and that's something that we see a lot of in men's cycling. They all think they can win, whereas women tend to think, well, I don't think I can win, so what can I do that's useful? We'll make you know, a performance. So I think that I hope... We saw Gilmore um, commentating uh, the Commonwealth Games this year, I think, for, was it Eurosport? Yeah, yeah, and, she, and she's doing our BBC commentary. Yeah, look, I think she did a really good job. She's and awesome. what I appreciate about Gilmore as well is that she's very clearly non-biased. I mean, she had her own team and she had, I think, four or five riders from her team were racing for England, New Zealand and Australia. And um, she, you know, she did a fantastic job of deflecting bias away from her riders and talked purely about the performances of all women in the race, which was really impressive. We haven't gotten to that point yet in Australia. Uh, we had two male commentators of the women's road race, one Scott McGorry, former Olympic track gold medalist, so he knows a lot about women's road cycling, and uh, another bloke whose name I don't even remember. 
And I contacted them and said, I just want to let you know that I'm available. I'm willing, able and available to help with commentary. And they said, oh, yeah, thanks. Um, Kate Bates put her hand up too, but I don't think they need anyone else. Oh. Okay. You know, Monique Hanley was having, I think Monique Hanley was watching the Commonwealth with Anna Millwood and you aren't. Uh, yeah, they had a fundraiser for a couple of local girls and, here who were trying to get money together. Yeah, yeah and, and Dan and Dan was watching Dan was watching the race with Kate Bates and Kelvin and a load of people in Sydney. And you're like, hang on a minute, you've got all this talent like literally sitting around watching the race. You know, there's yeah. you as well. It's like yeah. it's like you could like you literally you could like just throw it, you know, you could throw a rock in one of those rooms and hit someone who <laughs> do a better job than some dude who's yeah. who's, who's a trapper. <laughs> Anyway, um, is the book a real thing? Yes, it is. I just haven't started it yet, but I've got um, I've got a lot of bits of it together, and I need to start properly. Well, no pressure, but I want to have it. I want to be buying it on my Christmas list next year. Oh yeah, yeah, no pressure at all. Done. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank and you so. Yeah, pick a book. <laughs> thank you so so much for your time. Where can people find you on the vast internets? Uh, they can find me at hotagentbabes.com and chickswithdicks.com. Isn't that and isn't that um, isn't that isn't that the um isn't that how your team um actually advertises itself? Naked, absolutely. Naked ladies We're, covered it, in body paint. You only get onto our team if you've got the right boobs. We're going to do a film clip, a bit like the J Lo Iggy one with the booty, but <laughs> it's all going to be pink body paint. Excellent. So where where are you really? I'm at, at bridey underscore od. On Twitter. on Twitter and the same on Instagram. I'm a brilliant photographer, especially when I get filters to make everything better. <laughs> and my blog at bridie.com.au, which <clears throat> I'm in the process of actually up, upscaling. It's going to look realer, more realer. Real. <laughs> bridie.com.au. Bridie that's the one. Everyone should follow you and thank you immensely for your time. And thank can we do this so again? Much. We need to do this again. We should do this again. I'll, I'll come up with more saucy stories as, the, as it progresses. I look forward to it. Terrific. Thanks, Sarah.